0: Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hustle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osborne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. and join me in Disgraceland, available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Lucille Ball are insane. She was investigated by the United States government over her ties to the Communist Party. Her grandfather was a brazen left-wing radicalist. Her high school sweetheart was a man with ties to the mob. Her first husband was a one-time political refugee. The FBI was so suspicious of her that her confidential government files swelled to 156 pages. But even when McCarthyism and political paranoia threatened to torpedo her career, Lucille Ball made great television television that was literally more popular than presidential inaugurations. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great television. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Knickerbocker Orchestra performing An Old-Fashioned Girl in a Gingham Gown from 1922. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Fred Zinnerman's From Here to Eternity. And why would I play you that specific slice of beach makeout cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one film in America on September 6, 1953. And that was the day that Walter Winchell proclaimed that Lucille Ball was a communist, nearly burying everyone's favorite redhead at the bottom of the Hollywood blacklist. On this episode, mobster boyfriends, massive FBI files. Hollywood Blacklist and Lucille Ball. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 5, Hollywood Land. Her grandfather made it look easy. Frederick Hunt held the rifle with poise. He squinted until the tin can was in his crosshairs. He stopped breathing for a moment, just long enough to pull the trigger without letting a shaky exhale butcher his aim. And then... The tin can danced around on its post. It dropped to the ground like a wounded soldier, next to all the other dented cans from past demonstrations. Lucille Ball and her younger brother Freddie watched with awe. It wasn't every day your grandfather turned your backyard into a makeshift firing range. It wasn't every day that you got a shiny twenty-two caliber rifle for your twelfth birthday either. Freddie fidgeted with excitement over his new toy, that all-American birthday gift for an all-American holiday, July Fourth, nineteen twenty-seven. Freddie leaped to his feet. It was his turn. He adored his gift from his grandfather, Hunt, or Daddy, as Lucy and Freddie called him. Their actual father had succumbed to typhoid fever when Lucy was three years old and Freddie was still in utero. Their mother, Dee Dee, married a man named Ed a few years later, but Ed was just that, Ed. He had no interest in stepping up to the plate as a stepfather. So, grandfather Hunt scooped up the role of Daddy instead. His duties today included giving his grandson a man-to-man lesson on marksmanship and chaperoning a girl named Joanna, who was Freddie's age, while she visited from a nearby neighborhood. There was an unwelcome guest at the range too. A boy from down the street named Warner Erickson crouched at the edge of the backyard. Daddy spotted him sneaking around a few shots ago. It wasn't his place to shoo the kid away. Instead, he scolded. If you're gonna creep and get out of the way, stay there. Lucy was 16 years old. She watched her brother fire away at the tin cans lined up along the backyard, one miss after another. The scent of hot dogs and hamburgers swept across the neighborhood. Celeron, New York, was a swell place to vacation if you had the money. Lucy's family didn't have the money, but they did have rent to pay. So Lucy worked at the local hamburger stand, tempting wealthy tourists with her signature pitch. Don't stand over there, she cried. Stand over here and get yourself a hamburger. While Dee Dee, Ed and Daddy worked during the day, Lucy was the woman of the household in charge of delegating chores. In her rare moments of downtime, she'd zip around town with her 23 year old boyfriend, Johnny. Her mustachioed beau had a reputation for trafficking alcohol to thirsty folks who couldn't stay dry during prohibition. There were whispers around town that he was tied to the mob. Lucy didn't care. Johnny treated her well and he kept her safe. He even carried a gun under his coat at all times. To Lucy, this rifle stuff looked like child's play. She stretched out in the July sun as Freddie handed the rifle to Joanna, the visiting girl. She set her sights on an old soup can and lined up the shot with shaky hands. A dud, Joanna's cheeks flushed. She hoisted the rifle up to her eyes and squinted again. She wasn't going to miss this time. Don't stand over there. A cry from across the neighborhood broke her focus. Warner, get home this minute. Warner knew what that tone meant. He bolted from the backyard at that instant. The same instant, Joanna fired the rifle. Warner darted across the firing range in front of the soup cans. He fell to the ground like wounded prey. Warner moaned into the grass. I'm shot. I'm shot. Daddy scoffed. No you're not, get up. But Warner couldn't get up. A patch of red spread across his shirt. Joanna hadn't missed this time. The bullet pierced Warner's back, severed his spinal cord and entered his lungs. Daddy scooped him up and rushed the boy back home but the damage was done. Warner was paralyzed from the waist down. He would never walk or skulk around anyone's backyard again. After the incident, Warner's mother developed a new habit to make sure Daddy paid his dues in guilt. She paraded wheelchair-bound Warner up and down the street, taking care to make a show of it in front of Lucy's house. Her display sent a clear message. You've taken everything away from my son. So the Erickson family was prepared to take everything away from Lucy's family, too. Their house, their furniture, Daddy's life savings, his insurance money. After two arduous trials... The Erickson's did take everything but Fred Hunt's spirit, but that was never the same either. The Erickson family hired a lawyer who twisted the accident into a finger-pointing sob story. He swore that Daddy had used Warner for target practice that afternoon. The accusation shattered Lucy's perception of justice. Warner chose to creep into their yard that day. He chose to disobey Daddy and run in front of the firing range. Daddy hadn't done anything wrong. No one would hear the truth. No one wanted to hear the truth the lawyers fabricated a story that was too gripping to ignore. The situation planted a seed of suspicion in Lucy's heart. If this was how the law treated innocent people, then she had no reason to trust the law. Daddy was suspicious of the law to begin with. Fred Hunt was a socialist with a capital S. He quoted his favorite activist and organizer, Eugene V. Debs, like he was quoting the Bible. Fred insisted the working man in America was beaten down by capitalism. Working men just like him, who hunched over a lathe every day to support his family, only to lose it all in an instant, over a lie. And the more life beat Fred Hunt down, the more his politics leaned to the left. When the entire family relocated to California in the 1930s, Fred brought his radical ideas along with him. The open-mindedness of the West Coast emboldened him. So did the spare time afforded by his recent retirement. Fred crapped on capitalism to anyone who would listen. The garbage collector and the milkman got earfuls on a regular basis. So did Fred's fellow retirees around town. In his old age, Fred's vocabulary was reduced to fighting words like the exploited and living wages. Eventually, he located a few like-minded leftists. When Fred wasn't hosting political meetings at the Ball Hunt residence, He was attending them elsewhere. Their West Hollywood home at 1344 North Ogden Drive rumbled with radicalism. After a while, Fred Hunt started using the C word, communism. Fred saw red. Everything fired him up. The countless meetings, the articles in the Daily Worker, the Roosevelt's goddamn capitalism worship, and that nearly made his temples explode. Fred suffered one stroke in his old age, and he lived on the brink of a second one. While Fred feared for the future of his country, Lucy feared for her daddy's life. He was so gung-ho for the cause that he often signed up Lucy, Freddie, and Dee Dee for political organizations without their knowledge or consent. He wanted the current administration to be swallowed up in big red flames, even if it meant throwing his family into the fire. No one would tell Walter Winchell who the file was from. That part was confidential. Confidential, like the bold red ink stamped across the manila envelope on his desk. That's what all the good shit said. Confidential, classified, top secret, translation, juicy, scandalous. Something that would make Winchell's listeners squeal as they sat around their radios. He rubbed his palms together. Walter Winchell wasn't just a radio news commentator. He was an investigator, or a meddling snoop, depending on who you asked. People relied on him to hear stuff that was off the record and on the QT, very hush-hush. Winchell tossed journalistic scruples aside. Confidentiality didn't apply to him, especially when he had a red-hot scoop that would rock America harder than Bill Haley and his comments. Winchell slid his thumb under the envelope seal and slid out a fat stack of papers. A dirty word stared up at him from the first page communist. Winchell raised his eyebrows. Another one. His listeners knew where he stood on commies. He stood right next to Senator Joseph McCarthy when it came to erasing what he saw as the greatest threat to America. Winchell's eyes drifted down the first page a photocopy of some voter registration paperwork from 1936. Party. Communist. Occupation. Actress. Address 1344 North Ogden Drive, Hollywood a dainty signature completed the form. Miss Lucille D. Ball. The cigarette propped between Winchell's lips nearly fell to the floor. Primetime's silly sweetheart was having a gas with the enemy. The voter registration wasn't even the most damning discovery in the folder. In 1936, Lucille Ball practiced her autograph on all kinds of paperwork for the commies. She signed a petition to repeal the California Criminal Syndicalism Act a piece of legislation that made it illegal to establish worker-based organizations and use strikes to advance workers' rights and demands. She signed a sponsorship certificate for a communist politician named Emil Fried, who planned to run for office in 1936. Apparently, Emil's campaign went off without a snag. According to the file, he became a member of the state central committee of the Communist Party in 1936, and then he appointed one of his beloved sponsors to join him. Lucille Ball wasn't just a communist, She was a delegate on the state central committee of the Communist Party. Winchell leaned back in his chair as he thumbed through the mountain of evidence. Lucy's name in The Daily Worker. Lucy's name in a booklet titled Republican, Democrat, Socialist, Prohibitionist, Progressive, Commonwealth, and Communist state central committees. She fell right under the communist column, naturally. Winchell imagined the outrage, the horror, the sheer amount of red puns. This could be the biggest bust since the Hollywood 10. In 1953, America was knee deep in the Red Scare, a supposedly patriotic witch hunt spearheaded by Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy in the House on American Activities Committee, HUAC for short. McCarthy's cutthroat efforts to sniff out the commies supposedly infiltrating the United States sparked hysteria across the nation. But even before McCarthy began his crusade, Red Scare hysteria overtook Hollywood. In October 1947, HUAC subpoenaed 41 producers, directors, and screenwriters to investigate their potential ties to the Communist Party. Ten of those artists, who actually were former party members, rebuked the investigation. They referenced their First Amendment rights of free speech and assembly. For citing their constitutional rights, HUAC ruled that the ten men were in contempt of Congress. Each so-called traitor did a year in federal prison for their crime their careers went down the drain. But their names, Dalton Trumbo, Ring Lardner Jr., will go down in history. These were the first entries on the infamous Hollywood Blacklist. The Hollywood Blacklist pitted politics against popular culture. Being labeled a communist in the mid-20th century was like being canceled in the 21st century. It didn't matter who you were, how much money you had, within reason, or what you'd achieved. If you were caught commingling with the commies, your career would never recover neither would your reputation. The paranoia escalated in 1950 when a pamphlet called Red Channels started appearing on the desks of broadcast network officials. The booklet included a list of performers and directors who had leftist associations. Some of the people listed were, or had been, actual bona fide communists. Others had merely attended a meeting or assigned a petition from a questionable organization. No creative field was safe from the scrutiny. Actors, musicians, screenwriters, even burlesque dancers found their names in the red channels. Arthur Miller, Leonard Bernstein, Dorothy Parker, Artie Shaw, each and every one was charged with subversion. The paranoia was so prevalent in Hollywood that networks hired blacklisting organizations to see if their stars were hiding suspicious pasts. Five bucks for a quick name check and another $2 for additional research, whatever that was. The cheap labor only fueled the fire. More background checks. More digging, more watching what you said and who you said it to. Some artists hadn't been careful enough. Artists like Larry Parks. Larry made a name for himself as an actor in the 1940s by mimicking Al Jolson in the Jolson story in Jolson Sings Again. Then he tarnished his name forever when he appeared before HUAC in 1951. Through tears, he admitted his former status as a member of the Communist Party. Larry knew it was over, no more screen time no more celebrity status. As his career crumbled, he took down his comrades with him. Joe Bromberg, Sam Rosen, Ann Revere, Lee Cobb, Gail Sondergaard, the Hollywood blacklist was only growing bigger. But Walter Winchell saw room for one more name. September 6th, 1953. Winchell cleared his throat before he dropped his latest bomb on America. He leaned into the microphone. What top redhead television comedian has been confronted with her membership in the Communist Party? Lucille Ball fumbled with the radio dial. Another Sunday alone. Another hot date with the news. On paper, working alongside her husband, Desi Arnaz, on their smash TV show, I Love Lucy, sounded like a dream. Their lives aligned perfectly. They shared the same set the same goals, even the same schedule, and their charming on-screen relationship guaranteed comic relief for millions of Americans every Monday night on CBS. But that was Lucy and Ricky, the television characters. Lucy and Desi, the real people, acted out plenty of scenes that never made it to the small screen. Like, for instance, Desi peeling away from the couple's ranch in Chatsworth, California, so he could pursue wild parties and gambling sprees. Lucy's lonely scene tonight in the Ball Arnaz household was a common one. She and Desi may have owned Lou Productions together, but Lucy kept her bank account separate from her husband's for a reason. She propped her feet up on the ottoman and sighed. She was so pooped she almost missed Walter Winchell's broadcast. What top redhead television comedian has been confronted with her membership in the Communist Party? Sitting on the sofa, Lucy froze. imaging Coca. After poor Imogen Coca, the dame from your show of shows, first Larry Parks, now Imogen, another victim of this senseless paranoia? Lucy shook her head with disgust. Of all the gossip-mongering reporters out there, Winchell was among the worst. Just a few years earlier, he greased the palms of the right doctor to confirm that Lucy was pregnant, before Lucy even found out herself. She heard the happy news at the same moment that thousands, if not millions, of strangers did. Winchell was ruthless, but his reporting was usually on the money. A telephone call shattered Lucy's alone time. Desi was on the other line, calling from their beach house in Del Mar. He was supposed to be hosting a party with his poker chumps. His tone suggested he was at a funeral. Lucy, he said gently, were you listening to Winchell tonight? And the rest of their conversation read like an I Love Lucy script. Desi played Mr. Serious. Mr. Serious. Lucy was as hapless as ever. Do you believe that about Imogen? Lucy said. Lucy, Desi paused in frustration. He's not talking about Coca. He means you. Lucy's face twisted into one of her overblown expressions. Me? How can he? That sneaky rat Winchill somehow got his hands on top secret information from the United States government. Lucy didn't know if that was legal, but she'd better get away with it. Whether or not Lucy would get away with it was another story entirely. Desi promised Lucy he was rushing home. His cavalier attitude disappeared. He gave her calm, clear instructions. People were coming to the house. They might beat him there. Expect company at 1 a.m. Lucy snorted. What? Are you having a party? No, honey. You're in trouble. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The dotted lines hypnotized Desi Arnaz. The white paint on the highway was all he could see in the twilight between Del Mar and the ranch in Chatsworth. His foot quivered on the gas pedal. 30 miles down, 100 to go. Darkness behind him and darkness ahead. The greatest darkness of all waiting at home. Desi Arnaz drove like a man on the run. And if he didn't get home fast enough, he'd be an actual man on the run. Coming from Cuba, Desi knew about political pressure. His and Lucy's social standing meant nothing, not right now. In this political climate, you're either with the cause or doomed to be crushed by it. Desi stared down at the white lines. Something moved in his periphery. He could swear his eyes were playing tricks on him. He only saw one man at first, a lone ranger mounted on a horse galloping beside the car. A rifle obscured his face and the stranger aimed right for the driver's seat. Desi sank his foot into the gas pedal. More men on horses charged towards the car, guns in their holsters, bullets in their pockets, suspicion in their eyes. There were others now, men on foot, marching on either side of the highway. Their boots clicked in lockstep. They thrust their rifles in the air. A rowdy battle cry united the crowd. Viva la revolution! Desi's heart leapt into his throat. He knew that chant. He was forced to recite it decades earlier when his life depended on it. The rumble grew louder. Viva la revolution! Headlights flashed in the rear view. A battered 1930s pickup truck emerged from the stampede and it was screaming. Fear pricked Desi's fingertips. That truck had a dozen armed men in the back, no doubt. They'd be in close range soon, locked and loaded, aimed right at Desi. The truck veered onto the other side of the highway. It gained on Desi from 100 feet away. 50 feet, 20, 10. Desi held his breath and braced for gunshots and broken glass. The truck whipped ahead of him and passed him on the left, and there were no men in the back. As the truck zipped by, the marching men beside the highway dissolved into the dirt. The horses and their masters collapsed into clouds of sand, back to the darkness, back to the dotted white lines. Desi Arnaz carried the ghost of the Cuban Revolution with him wherever he went. As a young teenager, Desi once enjoyed a life of upper-class ease. His grandmother co-founded Bacardi, the rum company. His father governed Santiago as mayor. The Arnaz family spread across three ranches, each with its own housekeeping staff. As the only son of Desiderio Alberto Arnaz de Aca II, little Desi was expected to become a doctor or a lawyer. That is... Until communism seized Cuba in 1933. In with Fulencio Batista. Out with El Presidente Gerardo Machado. And that went for anyone connected to the president, too. Opposing politicians faced one of two fates. Arrest or execution. Their homes were ransacked. Property was confiscated. Desi's family was no exception. The rebels wrangled his father into jail. And they came for the Arnez family next. Desi was in the middle of a poker game when his uncle made the call that changed his life. Bolsheviks were marching towards his family's home to tear their lush life limb from limb, he said. Take nothing. Leave now. Move as fast as you fucking can. That's what Desi Arnaz did 20 years ago. And that's exactly what he did tonight as he hurried home to his wife. Communism made him a refugee once before, and Desi wasn't about to let it happen again. Three sullen faces greeted Desi as he walked in the door at 2 a.m. The color drained from Lucy's face. Even her fire-red hair looked dull tonight. Beside her was Howard Strickling, MGM's head of publicity, and Ken Morgan, Desi Lou's PR chief. She fumbled to explain herself to the two gentlemen while Desi shook his coat off. It was all a misunderstanding, she said. Walter Winchell's scoop was incomplete. Even the United States government knew that. By 1953, copies of Red Channels were starting to gather dust, but HUAC was still searching for a traitor in plain view of the American people. Ronald Reagan, Walt Disney, MGM's own Louis B. Mayer, they all had to answer the same question. Are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Now, Lucy was in the hot seat. Even though she had nothing to hide, the seat still burned like hell. September 4th, 1953. Days before Winchell's damning broadcast, Lucy stood before two California congressmen at the Del Mar Hotel in Santa Monica. The House Un-American Activities Committee summoned her to share her testimony regarding the mounting evidence that she was a communist. Lucy told the congressmen in the committee the sappy truth. Yes, she did register to vote as a communist in 1936. Her grandfather was so impassioned about the cause she feared he'd suffer another stroke if she didn't. She blindly signed some paperwork for the same reason. Apparently, that included a petition to repeal the California Criminal Syndicalism Act, and Lucy admitted she didn't even know what all that mumbo-jumbo meant. The paperwork Hueck had was all real, but Lucy never actually cast a vote, nor did she attend any meetings for the party, and she certainly didn't serve as their delegate. If someone appointed Lucille Ball to the State Central Committee of the Communist Party, then nobody cared to mention that tidbit of information to her. After she professed her hearty allegiance to the United States, Hugh assured Lucy that she was cleared and that her hearing would remain top secret. Then, Walter Winchell made his fraction of the story national news. Desi and Lucy paced around the kitchen. The headlines would come soon. The jabs, the condemnations. Lucy's sweet demeanor deflated. She recognized this feeling. She first felt it when the court found Daddy guilty in the 1920s. The knot of dread in her stomach that meant she was about to lose everything. Lucille Ball had a lot to lose. By 1953, no one remembered that Lucille Ball was once a queen of the bees. When I Love Lucy debuted in 1951, she rocketed from low-budget movie star to entertainment icon and mogul, and unabashed boundary pusher too. Millions of Americans saw TV filming concepts take shape for the first time through the lens of Lucy and Ricky. Live studio audiences, three distinct camera angles, reruns, not to be confused with retakes, which Desi didn't allow. Retakes were far too costly with three cameras running, and the show's cultural firsts were just as significant. At a time when segregation was still the law of the land, Lucy and Ricky were the first interracial couple to appear on television. Lucy was the first woman to truly own the spotlight as a lead character, too. She wasn't just relegated to the background, standing over the stove or a sink, smiling at her husband. She was a fully developed character with a fully developed life and a fully developed personality. Lucy refused to be overshadowed by her husband. The ladies in Leave It to Beaver and The Andy Griffith Show could not say the same. The couple's wrists earned them an unprecedented audience. Every Monday night, roughly one in five Americans gathered around the television set to watch I Love Lucy. One in five. The show was so popular that water usage went down nationwide between 9 and 9.30 p.m viewers were hesitant to miss a gag while they went off to use the bathroom. The show's viewership was its own historical event. It dwarfed actual historical events. On January 20th, 1953, 29 million Americans watched the inauguration of President Eisenhower. An impressive turnout, certainly. Just one day earlier, 44 million Americans witnessed Lucy and Ricky welcome home a baby boy in episode 51 of I Love Lucy, entitled Lucy Goes to the Hospital. America didn't just love Lucy, they adored her. But if you loved Lucy, and Lucy was a communist, could you love America too? Desi Lou Productions was on track to become an empire. One misleading news report could topple that fortress to the ground. Desi would be damned if he'd let that happen. His wife would not become another Larry Parks. Desi had a special call to make. An old chum from the Del Mar racetrack. Someone who had an in, someone who had answers and power. Desi Arnaz grew impatient with every ring. He tapped his finger on the receiver. The outcome of this conversation could change everything. It could spare his wife from a career catastrophe, or it could sink her like a stone. It all came down to a few pieces of paper in this one phone call, assuming someone answered it. he needed some intel on Lucille Ball's FBI folder. He wanted to make sure HUAC wasn't hiding any curveballs that could push Lucy's scandal over the edge and onto the Hollywood blacklist. It was a hell of a favor to ask, but this was a hell of an emergency, and he was calling the man at the tippity-top of the FBI for help. Desi believed his wife's testimony about appeasing her grandfather, of course, and he wasn't confident that America would be his understanding. Desi twirled the phone cord around his fingers so tight he nearly lost circulation, but he didn't hang up. He knew his pal would come through eventually. Hello. Desi recognized the flat, composed voice on the other end of the phone. When duty called, J. Edgar Hoover answered. In normal circumstances, Desi and Hoover bonded over bets at the Del Mar racetrack. Today, Desi had a different gamble to make. He risked Hoover chewing him out for meddling in confidential government affairs, or worse, telling the newspapers about this little call. Desi got right to the point He recapped Winchell's white lie and asked if there were any surprises lurking in Lucy's files. Hoover admitted he'd already looked into the matter. Absolutely nothing, he said. She's 100% clear as far as we're concerned. Desi started making a plan before he placed the phone in the receiver. He finally had the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And nothing was more American than that. Lucy and Desi gripped each other's hands. The hands of the clock in their living room hovered over the stroke of midnight, and they'd learn their fate any second now. The couple needed more good news. In the past few days, many major newspapers published Lucy's full testimony in front of HUAC, and that was the beginning of the damage control. Lucy had Desi to thank for the PR turnaround, which he helped ensure with a press luncheon at the couple's ranch. Larry Parks even showed up at the get-together with flowers for Lucy. Desi graciously accepted the bouquet and ushered Larry back to his car before anyone of note could see a real former communist banging on the front door. The majority of the press had pardoned Lucille Ball, but the jury was still out on I Love Lucy. Episode 57, titled Ricky's Life Story, was their first episode since Walter Winchell's Red Hot broadcast. The episode kicked off the show's third season. No one was sure it wouldn't be kicked out of its usual number one position on the Nielsen and Trendex polls for Monday's 9 to 9.30 p.m. time slot. Tonight's call from CBS with the results would either secure their TV series as a staple of American television or squash it forever. Lucy's eyes followed the second hand as it crept toward the face of the clock. She could lose it all again. Teenage Lucy lost her home in New York, and now adult Lucy could lose her home in Desilu Productions if I Love Lucy tanked. Lucy snapped up the phone the second it rang. She held the receiver an inch from her face so Desi could listen too. The couple heard the CBS exec beaming over the phone. I Love Lucy reigned supreme. The show remained at number one. The results were a declaration. America did love Lucy despite it all. And America didn't stop loving Lucy for another four years until the show ended on May 7th, 1957. Eventually... Desi Arnaz stopped loving Lucy, though. The couple divorced in 1960, although they always remained amicable towards each other. As Desi and Lucy moved on from their romance, Americans moved on to Lucy's newest TV ventures, the CBS sitcoms The Lucy Show and Here's Lucy. But one entity in particular couldn't move on. Despite J. Edgar Hoover's contention, the United States government never let its attention stray from the personal life of Lucille Ball. The Nixon administration requested another name check on Lucy in 1971, nearly 15 years after her Red Scare scandal. Many letters in her FBI file share the same greeting to Hoover himself. Pursuant to your request, interpret that as you will. When Lucy bought out Desi for complete control of Lu Productions, the FBI was watching. When Desi was arrested for driving while intoxicated, the FBI was watching. They even watched as Lucy found a new romance and married comedian Gary Morton. Newspaper clippings from every major life event fill her fat FBI file. The grand total comes to 156 pages. It's a file rife with rumors and real proof of her small but verified connections to the Communist Party. A file that almost took down America's favorite redhead with the red scare. A file so powerful, it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at BadlandsPod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone. Shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.